I was there. <laughs> Matthew 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I am the other Mary. And you might think I'm trying to make a statement about non-gender-specific bathrooms or something like that, but I'm not. I am the other Mary. On Christmas Eve, you know, I usually preach in character, and sometimes I preach in character on, on Easter, but I'm not in carry, character. I, I am the other Mary. The Gospels mention several Marys that might have been at the tomb on, on Easter morning that might be that other Mary. Mary, the mother of James. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, Mary of Magdalene, uh, who, according to tradition, was a prostitute. Uh, Jesus cast seven demons out of her, and she may have anointed uh, Jesus' uh, feet. Mary, Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus' head with perfumed oil, and of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Matthew could have specified, but he wrote the other, the other Mary. And I think he did that for a reason. He's pointing out that the church is the other Mary. He's already, of course, Jesus is saying, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother. As if whenever you love, you are giving birth to Jesus um, in this world, like, like Mother Mary. And some have argued that Mary of Magdalene was actually Jesus' bride. Of course, that's not true. And of course, it is true. Because <laughs> Jesus is married to all the Marys. He's married to the people of God. We are the bride of Christ. That's the grand narrative of Scripture, that God betrothes himself to his people, but his people whore, play the whore, and go whoring in whoredom. And now I'm not being crass. I am directly quoting 91 Old Testament Bible verses that the people of God, oh, shoot, losing my veil. <laughs> He's directly quoting 91 Old Testament Bible verses that the people of God just, just seem to, to ignore. A harlot, a whore, a harlot is or one who plays the harlot buys and sells love as if love were a commodity that, that, that we could uh, manipulate and control. But a bride, a bride no longer bargains for love. She surrenders to love in a covenant of love. For harlots, love is conditional. For a bride, love is unconditional, and it actually determines all conditions. Well, we are all Mary the harlot destined to be Mary the bride, giving birth to Jesus in this world, Mary the mother of Christ. We're all Mary. We're all Mary, and we're all Eve. John is sure to point out in, in his gospel that all of this happens in a garden, and Scripture tells us that Jesus was crucified on a tree. God is love, and God alone is good. So when Eve took the knowledge of the good, she took the life of love, as if it were like a piece of fruit hanging on a tree. 
We all took the life of love hanging on a cross in a garden called Calvary. Well, Jesus is the ultimate Adam, says Scripture, and that makes us his harlot bride, Eve. Chew on that a bit, and that will make your head spin. And then it will fill in all kinds of blanks throughout Scripture. But for right now, I hope this picture of me is burned into your brain. You know, like, so you can't forget it. So like tonight when you go to sleep, this picture shows up because I am the other Mary. And you are the other Mary. You're the other Mary. You're Mary too. I'm Eve. I'm Mary Magdalene, and I'm Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, I am the strange woman that we've been talking about. Morning apple? Morning apple? I'm the strange woman that we've been talking about the last several months that anoints, that anoints the, the feet of Jesus and his head with <coughs> perfumed oil. I'm that strange woman. You are that strange woman. But I gotta be honest with you, I just don't feel comfortable in a dress. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take it off right now and then we'll and then we'll keep we'll keep we'll keep preaching. Becky maybe. Matthew chapter twenty-eight. Oh Mike's on my back. Okay. Thanks, Fred. I just don't do this very often. <laughs> Thank you. Matthew, chapter 28, uh, verse 1. I gotta put my glasses on too. And the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, now this is a real problem for God. Th throughout Scripture, whenever God shows up, whenever he appears before people he loves, they tend to drop like flies or, or burst into flame. When Moses spoke to God on the mountain, the people of Israel were so terrified at the word of God, the word of God which came from the fire, they were so terrified at the word of God that they say to Moses, who has heard the voice of God coming out of fire and lived? And then they begged Moses not to let God speak to them directly anymore. Then God says to Moses, yeah, Moses, that's probably a pretty good idea because I could kill him. But then God gives Moses instructions to build a box called an ark, which can also be translated coffin. Same, same word. It would contain the law, which is the word of God in stone, like, like dead word. And God told them to cover that with an atonement seat or a mercy seat. Uh, sprinkled with blood, the life is in the blood. God's presence would manifest on the mercy seat and speak to, to, to Moses. God would travel with his people. He'd go to war with his people. He would save his people from the seat, the throne on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was absolutely wonderful and entirely unsafe. 
500 years later, King David was bringing the ark into the city of Jerusalem on a cart. The cart hit a rut at, the, at a threshing floor, and the ark uh, began to wobble, and a fellow named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark, and he got smoted right there on the spot. God smote him. Well, the ark was obviously too dangerous to keep in a tent made of cloth. So King David endeavored to construct a container made of stone called a temple. In 2 Samuel 7, God says to David, but David, I like to move around with my people. I want to go camping with my people. That's why I gave instructions for a tent. I never asked for a house. Nevertheless, your seed will build me a house. Everyone assumed that that seed, that son of David that would build the house was Solomon. Solomon built a stone house. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go behind the veil in the temple, the temple of stone, and sprinkle, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on top of the ark. They tied bells to his robe and a rope to his ankles just in case God smote, smote him in the inner sanctuary and he became like Uzzah, living sacrifice. Well, God seems kind of intolerant, don't you think? God seems to have anger issues, wouldn't you say? God seems kind of divided, don't you think? Should I save my people or smite my people? That seems to be a problem. He's like a bonfire in love with a snowflake or a bug zapper in love with a gnat. I think worship in the temple must have looked something like this. Look at the light! I can't help it. It's so beautiful. And it's not like God is the bad guy and Jesus is the good guy. Jesus is the word of God that gets spoken from the fire. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the zap in the zapper. At one point, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up, up a, a high mountain during his ministry. And on top of the mountain, it's like he, he turns off stealth mode. And his face begins to shine brighter than the sun. St. Paul wrote, we have seen the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. Well, Peter sees, and Peter, he freaks out. He begins to yell, should I build tabernacles? Should I build tabernacles? That means tent or, or, or temple. A burning cloud appears. The disciples fall on the ground as if smoted, and a voice comes out of the cloud. Peter, shut up! Listen! But we understand what Peter's doing, right? He's thinking, this is out of control. This is totally out of control. We better get Jesus in a box before someone gets hurt. It's no wonder that the leaders of Israel freaked out when Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. They had God under control. They had God in a box, and they would sell him to the people at the temple for a profit. They were playing the whore. They were pimping God. I bet they secretly hoped that God was dead, you know, because it's easiest to buy and sell a dead God that you only pretend is alive. But if God is alive 
the temple is destroyed and God gets out of the box, well, that could be like an epic disaster. All the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord when God would judge his people and he would judge them for playing the whore. They said that on that day, God's anger would be revealed. That word for anger in Zephaniah 2 is also translated face. God had said to Moses, no man can see my face and live. Well, it was prophesied that on that day, the sun would go dark at noon. The earth would shake and the moon would be confounded. It, it would it would blush. Scripture claims that as Jesus hung on the cross, the sun went dark at noon. The earth shook, and according to astronomers, the moon rose blood red in full eclipse over the plains of Judea that night, April 3rd, 33 AD. Well, you see, everyone saw the signs. In fact, that's what Peter says in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He said, you all saw this, but the most foreboding sign of all is that the veil in the temple the veil ripped from top to bottom and it appeared, it appeared as if God got out. Tombs were broken in the city and, and people got out and the priests were obviously terrified that the tomb in which Christ was laid might also break and he might get out. And so of course the guards dropped like flies when the earth shook and the angel descended. Just the angel let alone the Lord. You know, on Easter, we all dress up. <laughs> and we smile and we say, He's alive! He's alive! Hallelujah! He's alive. But you know, the worst thing you can hear in a horror film is something rather familiar. <laughs> it's alive! It's alive and it wants you! It's alive, it wants you, and it could be anywhere and everywhere. Verse 4. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not, to the women, do, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, He's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Hi. <laughs> Karete in Greek. Translated greetings, hail, or rejoice in most English Bibles. Technically, it means you all rejoice, but, but in Jesus' day, it was the common greeting, and so it should be translated hey, or howdy, or hi. And so this is the first word from beyond the grave, spoken in the new eon by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus says, hi. <laughs> I mean, of all things that he could have said, hi, why? Why hi? I mean, you expect something like, Behold, I have risen! Sound the trumpets! Call the alarm! Today we march upon Rome! <laughs> or maybe, whoa, check it out. <laughs> I'm God! <laughs> so I'm not hanging out with you dirtbags any longer. See you later. 
Or maybe he could have said something like this. I am consubstantial, co-eternal, and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, being three persons existing in a perfect hypostatic union that you really ought to refer to as the Trinity. He could have said that. But instead he said, hi. Why does he say hi? I mean, that's just so, so normal. It's something you might say to someone with whom you're entirely familiar. No, it's entirely casual. No anxiety, no pomposity, no insecurity, nor, no, no, no show, just hi. May contain no more meaning than, hey, look, <laughs> we're together. Could it be that that's what God was aiming for since the very beginning? Just that we would be together at home. Maybe he'd go for a walk in the garden in the cool of the day together. Jesus says, hi. Hi, it's me. Same guy you were with last Friday. It's just that now you know I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I'll just say it, God. So my first question is, why did Jesus say hi? And the second question, the big question is, why didn't these women just like drop dead or burst into flame? It appears that God's problem has been solved. The theological word for that is atonement. Atonement had been made somehow. Theologians have argued for thousands of years about the nature of the atonement. But the most popular idea in churches today is that on the cross, Jesus' death changed something in God. It's the idea that God the Father couldn't tolerate sinners. But God the Son loved sinners, and because he died for sinners, it changed the heart of God the Father. The only problem with that is that God is not divided. God is one. And God does not change. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. You know, people still drop dead and burst into flames in the presence of not only God the Father, but God the Son after he dies for the sins of the world. You know, when he appears to John in the Revelation, John drops as if dead. When he appears to the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, it almost kills Paul. In 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul writes this, that, that one day Jesus will be revealed in flaming fire, and those who don't know, know God and obey the good news will be destroyed simply by the manifestation of his presence. Of course, Paul argues that he has already been destroyed by Christ's presence. It happened on the road to Damascus. He was destroyed and made new. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, he writes. God saved Paul by smiting him <laughs> and making him new. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul writes that the Antichrist will be destroyed by the epiphany of Christ's coming. It's like Christ is already here. And all he has to do is turn off stealth mode. And all who don't trust that he is good news just go up in flames. So my point is God doesn't change, 
from intolerant to tolerant because of the death of Jesus. And maybe we ought to ask this question, is God or was God ever really intolerant in the first place? The prophet Habakkuk does say this, that God cannot look on sin. And then Habakkuk complains to God that he idly looks on sinners. He, he can't look on sin, and yet Scripture says he sees all things, which clearly implies that sin is not a thing. But the absence of things, like goodness, truth, and love, so God is intolerant of no things, that is, nothing, which we refer to as something, which we call evil or sin or chaos and the void, the absence of love, truth, and goodness, goodness. In Exodus 33 and 34, when God says to Moses, no man can see my face to live, God does agree to let Moses see his backside, his behind. That's, that's what it says. He lets him see his behind as his as he makes all his goodness pass before Moses and he declares his name. He hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He passes by him saying this, I am that I am, I am that I am, and I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will be merciful on whom I will be merciful, forgiving sin, but I won't simply clear the guilty. I think he's saying, I will be tolerant on whom I choose to be tolerant. And if you are intolerant of my tolerance, I will not tolerate your intolerance. I'll destroy it and turn it into tolerance. You know, tolerance isn't a, a word that you can find very easily in most English Bibles, but you know that they must have had some word to describe the concept in Jesus' day. And, and I think it's clear that, that they did. It's the, it's the Greek word, um, aphesis, that's the noun, or the Greek verb, aphiomi, uh, uh, aphesis and aphiomi, which is translated let, or allow, suffer, or forgive. You know, I hope, that unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. In other words, God will not tolerate your intolerance indefinitely. It's like he's so tolerant, his tolerance will burn your intolerance until you are tolerant. I mean, think about it. Who could possibly be more tolerant than God and his word through whom he creates all things? Think of someone that you can't tolerate. Okay? Could be Donald Trump. Could be Barack Obama. Could be Bashar al-Assad, Hitler, or your mother-in-law. Think of that person. God continually tolerates that person or they would not exist. And isn't that your chief complaint against God? that he tolerates guys like Bashar al-Assad and your mother-in-law. Think of a person you cannot tolerate. Maybe it's you. God tolerates you. 
Saying on Mars Hill, among pagan philosophers in Athens, St. Paul says this, in, in God we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said. You literally exist in God. His word became flesh and told us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means that anytime anyone finds the way, the way has found them. That means that anytime anybody tells the truth, the truth is telling them. That means anytime that you say, my life, my life, you confess to taking Christ's life, God's life. God is love, and that means love is not your idea. You are love's idea. You literally exist in God, and God obviously constantly, continually tolerates you. But this is the question. Can you tolerate him? Imagine if God went out of stealth mode, and you suddenly realized it's alive. In the newspaper, I read about a man who had been pronounced dead but regained consciousness in, after 12 hours in his, his coffin. Upon discovering this man alive, the paramedic that, that found him collapsed in shock and then died. He realized, just alive! And died. Imagine if the entire creation spoke and said, Hi, I am the beauty in every sunset. I am the way that everything and anything happens. I am the truth that binds all things together. I am the life in all things and even in you. I am outside the Big Bang and I am the breath of God behind the veil in the sanctuary of your own soul. I am that I am. And you are entirely because I am. Imagine if you suddenly realized it's alive. It wants me. And it's literally everywhere that's anywhere. Imagine if you sat down to eat a cheeseburger and the cheeseburger began to talk to you and said, I am the light that shone into the dust that turned into this fruit that you call wheat, that is now this tasty whole wheat hamburger bun. <laughs> and I am the life that was sacrificed to make this savory, medium-rare hamburger patty for which you didn't even say thank you. I am the good who is constantly giving himself to you as a gift, but whom you constantly take as your own commodity. You have objectified me. Imagine if you suddenly realize that God is not only good, but that God alone is good, which means he's the good in everything. Imagine if you suddenly realize that you had taken the life of the good the way Eve took the knowledge of the good from the tree in the garden. You know, if, 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 if Jesus is actually the way, the truth, and the life, then anytime you demand your way, you wound the way. And anytime you tell a lie, you break the truth. And anytime you think, this is my life, you take the life of Jesus. If God really is love, then anytime you sin, you crucify love.
Scripture reveals that the entire law is revealed, summed up in one word, and that word is love. So all sin, think about this, all sin is an intolerance of love, who is God, who literally tolerates all things, for he creates and sustains all things, except no things, which are the sins and illusions in which you are currently trapped right now as you sit here Sunday morning, Easter morning. Imagine if you suddenly realize, I mean, in the depths of your being, it's alive. It wants me. It's everywhere. It's good. It's God. And I have crucified him. Time and time and time again. And time and time and time again. He let me. I think you'd drop dead or burst into flames. That realization that you are not in control, but God is in total control. That realization that you are utterly and constantly dependent on the grace of the one that you constantly abuse. The sudden realization of absolute grace would kill you, or at least kill the you that you thought was you. That's the you that you thought that you had constructed. I'm talking about your psyche. Grace unravels our psyche. The revelation of the real Christ would kill the Antichrist, which means the imitation Christ. And by that, I mean your arrogant ego, that thing that is so intolerant of yourself and everything else, that thing that refuses to forgive for it thinks that it is his own creator, savior, and judge. That thing will die in the manifest presence of the living God, who is absolute love and whose word is reality itself. The revelation of God's tolerance obliterates your intolerance. I'm saying the revelation of grace obliterates your sin and saves you. Do you understand? God is not intolerant of us. We are profoundly intolerant of God. Is that not the obvious point on Good Friday? He didn't nail us to the tree. We nailed him to the tree. To be intolerant of God is what we call hell. To be intolerant of the way is to be lost. To be intolerant of the truth is to be dead. To be intolerant of the, uh, of the life is to be dead. To be intolerant of the truth is what? Is to be trapped in your own illusion. To be intolerant of love is to be entirely alone. And so that's why you should hate cheating on your taxes. That's why you should hate slandering your neighbor. That's why you should hate committing adultery and hoarding your riches and refusing to get, forgive. That's why you should hate sin, because sin teaches you to, to lust for hell and hate heaven. Salvation is the ability to tolerate God and his word, which upholds all things, including earth and heaven and even you. Listen closely to what Jesus said. Blessed is he that is not offended at me. Blessed is he that tolerates me. The living word of God named God is salvation. Do you remember why they nailed him to the tree? It was because he was so tolerant of Romans. 
Samaritans, Syrians, tax collectors, sinners, and whores, and was so very intolerant of those who would not tolerate his tolerance. It was religious people that took his life on the tree and posted a guard at the tomb, for they wanted to keep the word of God in their box. Now, Jesus did say this. He did say, no one comes to the Father but by me. No one comes to the Father but by me. Seems like a small box. No one comes to the Father but by me. But it was right after he said this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, you can't go pretty much, you really can't go anywhere in this world where you don't find some way, some truth, and some life. And, and the way, the truth, and the life is Jesus. On that day, judgment day, all people will see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ as they stand before for him, seated on his glorious throne, from which I expect him to say, Hi, my name is Jesus. And those people that had learned to love the way, the truth, and the life, I expect them to say, Hi, I am so glad to finally learn your name, and I'm so happy to be home. And those folks that tried to keep the word in their box, sell it on the street like a pimp sells a whore? Oh, I expect them to scream in terror and run from the light into the darkness and hide themselves under the rocks of the earth and under the mountains, crying out, save me from the wrath of the Lamb. <laughs> The lamb standing on the throne. I expect them to weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness until they finally surrender their intolerance to the furious, relentless tolerance of the living God. So if you're an unbeliever here this morning because, you know, it's Easter, you had to come with your family or whatever, on behalf of the institutional church, I apologize. For we have objectified God. We have kept him in our own box. And we have sold love for our own profit. Of all people, Mary of Magdalene knew how that felt. And just how much it hurt. But I hope you see, God is not intolerant. We are. God does not have anger issues. We do. God is not divided. We are. And God does not change. But Mary did. Mary and the other Mary went to the cross and it didn't change God. It changed them. They went to the cross and they heard Jesus pray, Father, F.S., Father, let them. Father, tolerate them. Father, forgive them. They went to the cross and saw that God didn't nail us to the tree, but we nailed God to the tree, and God let us. And isn't that the obvious point on Easter morning that God is insanely, relentlessly, and absolutely good? They went to the cross and they saw that the good we took is the good that had always been given and forgiven. God himself and his living word. And then they knew, not because they took knowledge of the good, but because they were known by the good, the living good. And now the tree of knowledge had become the tree of life. And they were no longer harlots who use love for their own reasons. They were the bride who surrenders to love who is the reason. They went to the tree in the garden and they watched God give them his heart.
Jesus from the bosom of the Father, writes John, he has made him known. The atonement is not something accomplished in God as if he changed. The atonement is the heart of God revealed in time and it changes us. It creates faith in us and faith is the capacity to tolerate the living God. So Jesus said, hi. And the Marys did not die or burst into flame. Verse 9, and behold, Jesus met them and said, hi. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. They didn't die, but they were smitten by the revelation of love. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers that, that I'll, they'll meet him in Galilee. Go and tell my brothers they will see me. So I, the other Mary, I'm telling you this morning that I think Jesus is saying hi all the time. And soon you will see him when you find the way. I mean like find the way to your friend's house. Jesus is saying hi. I think is actually the way that we get everywhere that's anywhere. He is all progress. When you laugh at the truth revealed in a joke, Jesus is saying, hi. <laughs> Are you surprised by the truth in that, in that joke? When your dog licks your hands, wags his tail, Jesus is life. He's saying, hi. Say hi back and say, thank you, Lord, for my dog. When you eat a tasty cheeseburger, Jesus is saying, hi. And maybe, hey, you know, you didn't make this cheeseburger. Maybe you could thank me for this cheeseburger. Say, say, hi, Jesus. And yeah, thanks for the burger. Really enjoy the burger. When you see a beautiful sunset, Jesus is saying, hi. And maybe he's saying this. Hey, Peter, did you notice? This is free. And I am free. And you do not pay for me. When you experience the good, Jesus is saying hi. And when you experience evil, what happens? You long for the good. And so he's still saying hi. And maybe he's saying, don't you long for me to come and fill all things with myself? And don't you long for me to come and fill all those empty places in you? And when you love, Jesus is saying, look, I'm filling you now from the inside out. On that day, he would like you to know it was him. And so I think he'll say something like this. It was me in the sunset. It was me and your dog. It was me that talked to you from the cheeseburger. It was me that hung on the tree and gave you your life. It was me. And so now, would you allow me to get out of the box? No more stealth mode. Would you tolerate me as I am? Jesus is saying hi, and soon you will see him. And on that day, he would like you to be entirely familiar with him. He would like to be entirely familiar to you. He's the groom. And you're the bride. And he will not rape you. And so right now he is romancing you. The heart of the harlot who thinks she must pay or be paid will not endure the free and furious love that is the great bridegroom. And so at the cross God destroys our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. At the cross, the Lord washes our filthy garments. 
in his blood and makes them white as, white as snow. At the cross, um, God, gives you, God gives you one of these. And he would like you to wear it in faith. Okay, guys? I'm talking faith there. <laughs> wear it in faith. Actually, it is faith. The righteousness of faith is your wedding garment, which Jesus purchased with his blood. Say, yes to the dress. <laughs> Paul Tillich wrote this, faith is the courage to accept acceptance. Faith is the courage to tolerate God's tolerance of, of you. Faith means trust, and trust enables you to relish God and be immersed, immersed in God forever and ever and ever. On the other side of this table, please understand, you are no longer in control. On the other side of this table, you no longer pay or are paid. On the other side of this table, you no longer are the harlot, you're the bride. I um, read of a young bride who died moments before her wedding. The, the family decided to bury her in her wedding dress. Well, every believer dies moments before his or her wedding, or at least the wedding feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so on that night before, at the beginning, at the beginning of that day, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you, take and eat. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant. Sometimes it's called new covenant, sometimes eternal covenant, it's eternally new. This is the, it's a marriage covenant. This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, my blood. You see, he not only tolerates you, he gives his very life for you that you would tolerate him too. I mean this. I, I, sometimes I find it hard to believe, but it's true. Listen closely. He is crazy about you. And he would like you to be crazy about him too. And so he's calling you to his table, which turns into a feast. It's a wedding feast. Pray with me. Now you can just pray this silently in your own heart after me, and don't worry, I'm not gonna make you raise your hand or do anything like that. You just talk to the Lord. And, and only say these words if if, if you're not lying, if you're lying, I don't think that'll work real well. But if there's a little bit of you that says it, that's good. That's like a mustard seed of faith and it will grow. Say, Lord, I confess that I have rejected love. I have despised love. I have even crucified love, and you are love. But now, I surrender to love. In Jesus' name, amen.
So you may think, um, a wretch? Is that true? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you're an old harlot, right, Steve? I mean, that's what, that's what we do, right? We buy and sell love as if we were God himself, and it turns out that love is God, and we are his creation. So we've all been harlots, but Jesus knows who you really are, and that is his bride. And so believe the gospel. You can confess your harlot ways, but believe the gospel. You've been purchased with his blood, washed in his blood, and that's who you really are. And now you've come to his table. And even in this world, even in this world, you have begun to commune with the living word of God. And so now you're a little bit pregnant. So go give birth to Jesus out in the world. You see, you are uh, Mary Magdalene, and you are Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. You are the other Mary. So in his name, believe the gospel and live.